there's a lot of strength in this country and there's a lot of warmth. And uh, I know it's at times quiche or maybe even, I don't want to sound cliche in any way. I know many people uh, have either a number of loved ones and friends or whatever, just neighbors, colleagues that display strength and kindness all the time. So I'm not going to pretend that this is something special, but um, it's a rare opportunity, I think, to experience so much of it in such a short period of time. And uh, this is going to be an unusual episode. Short, uh, yeah, very short compared to the other episodes. And uh, just uh, an acknowledgement of a few people that I saw shining yesterday in different ways, but uh, a very, very uh, a unique positive energy in a country that knows nothing but negative uh, experience and tragedy. I'm not going to name the first person for privacy. Uh, she has not made her story public, and I, I admire her for that. I think uh, it takes a lot of strength uh, to sometimes suffer in silence. But uh, these are stronger people. Um, I don't know if I could be that strong if I were in a similar situation. Uh, but uh, she's surrounded by loved ones, close friends and family know. Um, I don't think, I didn't think I was close enough uh, to be in that limited circle, but um, yesterday I visited someone that uh, was young, dynamic, um, a beautiful soul, um, who recently had breast cancer, um, who removed her breasts a few uh, months ago, if not maybe a little longer, no, several months ago, and um, found out that uh, cancer had spread into her bones and found out in the most painful way possible. Uh, a friend hugged her a little too hard and her spine cracked. Her neck cracked as well and suddenly she didn't realize it but there were three fractures within a short period of time and um, at the beginning, I mean, not knowing that the cancer had spread, was sort of thinking this is just an unusual uh, unusual pain without realizing that they had fractured. And, you know, within hours, sort of rushed to the hospital, uh, acknowledging that anti-inflammation medicine doesn't solve anything here, and uh, has been in, in and out of the hospital since. Now this is maybe two weeks. But uh, each trip to the hospital is under more precarious circumstances and uh, undergoing radiotherapy uh, in pain, injected with many pain, a lot of pain medicine, pain relief medicine. And uh, I walk in to AUH and I see her on her bed. Uh, her sister is there and uh, a friend. But uh, she's an angel. I mean, and she's a, an angel with a wicked sense of humor. The moment I walk in, it's unbelievable. She's 
I mean, we can't really make eye contact easily because she's lying down. She can't really move uh, off of the bed and the way it's designed. Sort of this machine helps her elevate her head a bit. But she can't really move her head either. Anyway, I can feel her smile when I walk in. And she's, I mean, without missing a beat, she's like cracking jokes about her cracks. <laughs> and it's not self-deprecation. It's something else. She's uh, letting laughter consume her. And we're laughing as well. And uh, we're making a very difficult experience almost borderline hilarious but full of kindness and there's a lot of warmth there and no one's crying no one's no one's sort of acknowledging the pain if you will uh, we're all just uh, laughing and all of us understand this making her feel better and she's making herself feel better too and um, I don't think of AUH that way Every time I've been there, it's been under terrible circumstances. Family loss or whatever. Friends. Anyone that I know who's suffering or sometimes dying at, AU, at AUH. I, I don't like going there. Uh, but I loved being there and I spent an hour with her. And we uh, even sort of had... We made fun of things that you're not supposed to make fun of. Uh, and uh, she reminded me something without saying anything about it. She reminded me that even when you're in, uh, you're in casts, you have cancer spreading throughout your body. Uh, your situation is difficult. That's an understatement. And you're going through radiotherapy and you know that everything is, well... There's a lot of precariousness in the story uh, that my problems are relative. I know that's a dumb thing to say. I know everyone says it all the time. But rarely do I feel it that this is, this is like, puts everything that I'm thinking about in comparison and makes me feel stupid for even thinking about things that don't really matter. And... Uh, Again, I know we all see this all the time. I mean, we, I think even walking in Beirut, driving in Beirut, you know that the city is suffering, its people is su are suffering. Uh, but um, I think the familiarity, once, you, once it's someone you know well who's suffering so much and you just sort of, you're, you're, you're surrounded by it, um, there's a lot of love in the air. And... I don't know. I felt like I was in the presence of someone unique and inspirational yesterday. And uh, maybe she'll make her story public one day. And I can bring her on the podcast. But uh, up until then, uh, I'll leave her story private the way she wants it to be. Anyway, so. An hour at AUH. Cancer. Illness, suffering, pain hospital. I know this is not a natural segue into the next subject, but um, I think it's worth acknowledging, and I'll try to adjust to the sudden switch. Um, there's a lot of people I know that are burned out in politics. Burned out because either 
they were putting a lot on the line in October 17 and the aftermath, assuming radical change would happen. A lot of act activists that are no longer here. Uh, people I grew up with that I associate with civil society that are gone. A lot of them, I think, for good. Um, and you check in on them from time to time, and you know that they're doing relatively okay, relatively, but that they would rather be here. But their dreams are unfulfilled for whatever reason. Uh, their aspirations have been curtailed, and now they've detached themselves. And the numbers increase over time. So it's not just uh, recent stuff. I mean, if you go back now, it's like a whole generation of civil society that, uh, that doesn't live here. And I'm being, I'm being loose with the term civil society. It could be an NGO like Helem with uh, its former director gone. Uh, it could be somebody like Gilbert Dumit, who's not here at the moment. And um, uh, it, could be, it could be even artists that don't consider this country home anymore. Uh, musicians, filmmakers, people that I think of when I walk down Hamra or when I go to what used to be Cayenne and Jamaisi, or whenever I sort of peek through Torino and, and look at what's inside today. What's inside? Who's inside today? <laughs> Both. Um, the people that I, the people that I turned to, to understand the story better, are not here. On the ground, there are many activists and politicians in the making that are still here, and they're not letting. Maybe they're not letting all of reality hit them which I think is the only way to manage through this moment. Uh, and I've grown to really respect and admire uh, many of the October 17 activists turned politicians, but in particular, uh, there's a few names that I, I think of often, and one of them is uh, Shadna Daif. Now, she's going to hate me, I think, for mentioning her right now, because for, probably for the right reasons that uh, this woman has no ego. Uh, she's humble. She doesn't like to be the focus of attention. Even when you're running for parliament, um, I think she has a healthy distance from the what could be an obsession with constantly being on the news, being interviewed, being uh, sort of like a, a representative of the youth and all these sort of... this like heavy stuff that you apply to people when they're just normal. Uh, she's a young, passionate politician in the making who ran Osos and Shemeluna, almost won, almost, got very, very close. And um, she's not burned out one bit. And I'm so inspired by that. My conversations with her, and I spoke to her yesterday, we spent almost two hours together, those two hours were almost like the same two hours I spent with her here when she was running for parliament. It's the same level of uh, expectation, principles, what she wants to see happen, how she sees things developing, room for negotiation, uh, red lines that she will never cross. It's the same person intact. And even if 
she doesn't run in four years, or let's say she runs for the Beledi, whatever, whatever she decides to do, whether she wants to be or doesn't want to be, she has a future in politics. It's just a matter of whether or not she wants to do it. But she's, she's a real inspiration for me. I learned from her. She, she almost, when she thinks I'm off track, she finds a way to explain to me how maybe someone in her shoes sees things without ever overstepping or trying to sound condescending. And I think I look for that in everyone where you want the healthy debate where you know you don't see eye to eye on everything, which is the human experience. But that friction is not costly to friendship. On the contrary, our friendship keeps growing. So I really admire her. I admire what her party does. Uh, I went and visited by, by chance. I ran into them in, uh, in, uh, in Ehden a few weeks ago at a function. This was completely by chance. I ran into Shaden, and then I ran into the group. Uh, they're all passionate for the future even when the country is, uh, is, is in its worst shape. So, I think I can say this. I, uh, of, of many that I've met in recent months, last year maybe, running up to the elections and post-elections, she stands out. And uh, I'm really lucky to know her now and consider her as a, as a friend, as a good friend. Um, after Shadon. This is also uh, maybe a, uh, an easier segue. Uh, I saw that Char Charles Hayek, Heritage and Roots on Instagram, was uh, giving a talk up near Farayan, Hrajil. So, looking at Google Maps, it'll take about an hour 30 minutes, hour 45 with traffic. I start driving, seeing that I'm going to make it exactly at 7 o'clock when the event starts. Through traffic, you know, Beirut is so damn hot the last few days. The humidity is out of control, but you, as soon as you reach a certain altitude, it's like uh, you forget that you're living uh, in maybe the, the wrong uh, elevation, the wrong geography in Lebanon, because Faraya is heaven. The road up to Faraya is heaven. You pass through the fog, through the clouds, and suddenly you're in a different country. And I mean in terms of health. I mean, the oxygen there is oxygen still. Anyway, anyway. It always pains me to see how much construction has happened on the way up in the last few decades. Uh, but still, still, it's a necessary escape from just how toxic sometimes the, the environment is in, on the coast and in Beirut in particular. And um, I make it up to a little cafe, a, a, new, a new sort of, more than a cafe, it's like a community space. There's a lot of things happening there, but it's more or less designed to be a cafe and a bar um, with a lot of sort of seating arrangements and a lovely terrace. You see a fantastic view. I mean, incredible, incredible uh, backdrop for a cafe. Community center. Rockfort Boutique, that's the name. I was trying to, I was struggling with the name. Rockfort Boutique. Check it out on the way going up to Farea. Uh I walk in, I see Charles, I mean, he's in, his, he's in his element already, sort of engaging the audience before the talk begins. He's, uh, he's, this guy is a story that I'm going to save for the end because there's really no one like him. Um, I go to the balcony and I run, run into uh, 
sort of a media manager or an advisor to Michel Mawad, uh, Joe Farshakh. And uh, Joe reached out to me months ago uh, to perhaps do an episode together and later do an episode with Michel Mawad and uh, pre-May 15, pre-elections. And um, it didn't happen. We sort of had a back and forth. It didn't happen. There was a lot of time constraints and all of that. And we both kind of, we didn't contact each other afterwards. But uh, it's the first time I meet him. I know him from, from social media. I know him private messages. But the moment I met him, I mean, I could tell that this man is so invested in this individual, Michel Mawad, and so passionate about his role in, uh, in that man's career. And removing that man's career from him, from Joe, he's, his enthusiasm for Lebanese politics, I mean, I almost, I was hoping that Joe would give a talk as well because just sitting with him, talking to him, he's, um, he's in his, it's almost like he's in his prime. And the details, the complexities about Ba'abda, post-Ba'abda, whether or not municipal elections would take place, uh, betting on them taking place, but seeing how there can be some maybe lessons learned from Zgarta, from, from the north in general, trying to expand on this reformist, revolutionary-inspired moment for change. But anyway, uh, there's almost like a glitter in his eyes that he, uh, he's, he's young, he's late 20s, but uh, believes that he's on the right side of history, open for debate, open for disagreement with uh, Michel Mawad's maybe recent past, that sort of uh, path that he decided to take with the FPM, uh, in 2018, uh, his calculations for doing it, his positions before and after, and whether or not that really uh, took a toll on his self-stated principles. He's open to talk, and that's, I think, what you should do if you're representing a candidate. A candidate not just in parliament that won, but a potential name for Babda for the presidency. Uh, whether or not Michel Mawad makes it now or later, uh, I think it's someone like Joe Farshakh behind the scenes who gives a positive image that's necessary for someone that's trying to ride the wave from previous regime governments into the more reform-minded post-October 17 era. And he's doing a fantastic job. And... Uh, I think it says a lot about Michel Mawad too that he would want someone like him uh, within his circle. So uh, there's there is inspiration there. Youth, younger uh, names emerging, older names running, and uh, trying to bring this whole country uh, into a better, uh, trying to rebuild this country in any way possible. Anyway, so Joe Farshakh is there. And then next to Joe Farshakh is a guy that I, 
He knows me from social media. Apparently, he watches many of the episodes. Uh, a member of Mimfid, Sharbil Salemi. So he's a member of Muatinun. He introduces himself this way, and he also says something which I, I enjoyed. Uh, he says he's a firm believer in Sharbil Nahas, and really took a lot from the episode I did with Sharbil Nahas. Personally, among my favorite. Uh, a heavy, in-depth episode, a deep discussion on what I was trying to do, which was narrow down the topics, because you can talk to him for hours and hours and hours about one subject. I wanted to narrow it down on ta'if, post-ta'if, and towards the end, really how to address the bigger issue that is Hezbollah. Anyway, uh, he really liked the episode. He learned from it. He wanted more of it. Uh, he watched other episodes I did with either Memphid members or friends of Memphid like Shad Ghassan. Um Anyway, he was open to talking about everything without stubbornness, without condescension, without uh, intolerance. He's a fantastic uh, individual within a group that gets, I think, a lot of uh, negative publicity from its opponents, which come from, I think, all sides. Um, he's young. He's heavily invested in politics. He's eager to discuss, and he's eager to have differing views, which I thought is, you know, that's a quality that uh, you need when you're in a party. You want to also reach out to other people, not necessarily in other parties, but individuals that you know you don't see eye to eye with. And there's a genuine desire there. He even suggested doing an event together, and um, but not from a place of I want to put you down, or I want you to look bad. It's on the contrary. It's the kind of thing that I look for when I do episodes, really, is to make the guests shine, uh, even when you don't see eye to eye. But you know that your disagreements are genuine and honest and sincere. They're not... Um, and the end goal... The long-term goal is primarily the same, which means the path that you take is not necessarily the same path all the time, but you want the final outcome to be the same. I think there's a lot of foundation there that you can build on anyway. So those two individuals on the side, they're completely by accident. And then I run into Charles Hayek. Run into him meaning I run into his performance. Because I was speaking to him on the side and he was sort of, he was talking to everyone and addressing different topics very quickly and very, very, uh, almost with wit. And then his presentation begins. And I mean, I pride myself that I spent over a decade taking thousands of Lebanese, foreigners, tourists, Lebanese from the diaspora, locals from Beirut, locals from across the country, students activists, at times politicians. I mean, I'm really happy that I, t really, I spent uh, the better part of my prime storytelling on my walking tour, Walk Beirut. So I, I, know what it, I know what it takes to get 50, 60 people at a time to listen to you and, and enjoy the experience. And I used to do it on the streets of Beirut. Charles, Charles Hayek can, I mean, within a, an instant, he can get a room full of, I 
think it was about 50 or 60 people, maybe a little less, let's say up to several dozen. I can't really remember exactly how many people were there. It's a full, full room, though, full, uh, full experience. An audience that quickly turns and sees him beginning his talk. And, I mean, it's so natural. It's so, it's so refreshing when he starts his journey into Lebanese history. And the topic was about Maronite history, but really about Lebanese history. And it's, it's, I mean, it's the value. And then you walk in and the experience is free. I mean, I can't put a, an amount on how much this is worth because it's priceless. It's priceless. And he has a certain way of reminding us that we don't really appreciate our history. I think he says in a way that's a little more blunt that you don't know your history, but he's challenging us. And it's not uh, meant to put us down. It's meant to bring us up. His, it's segues, which is what really any storyteller, I think, uh, that's worth his or her salt uh, knows that it, it's, about, it's about timing. In my experience, it was timing and location, how to best tell a story exactly where and when and how and the acoustics maybe and in my case avoiding traffic construction but with him it's about linking passages together in a way that only i think a storyteller knows how to do it's not a chronological boring history text uh it's a it's layers and layers of unraveling and he spent over two hours and i told him this afterwards it's true uh, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this here. Uh, it was a fantastic experience. We were glued for two hours. Even when some of us were looking at our phone, it was to confirm or to help him when he was using his phone for Instagram Live. We were sort of helping him find a passage that maybe he needed to read from. But none of us were like, None of us were distracted from what he was saying. And he had a PowerPoint uh, presentation sort of just to, just to bring it to life a little more. But uh, really, it, like you, all, he could have done the same thing even without the slides. We were all glued to him. It's because he's dynamic. He's passionate. He's a, he's a teacher. He's a lecturer. But he's more than that. And uh, I don't know. I think uh, he deserves to be a minister of education or whatever. Some, he, he needs to have a role in, in the state's uh, infrastructure and uh, he should be part of the state somehow or the state should reach out to him someone, somehow because if there's anyone that can make you really care about Lebanese history, it's him. It's Charles Hayek. Uh, and I will say something. I know that a lot of people that I've met, or even from private messages, they disagree with him, or they, they don't see the story the same way, or they think that he's perhaps at times a little too hard on one side, maybe. I don't wanna don't wanna I don't wanna dumb it down, but let's say that there's a there's an identity layer to the story that not many people 
can come to terms with and there is a divide. And I think uh, maybe the more nationalist, the more, uh, the more Lebanese quotes, I don't know how to say this without making me sound like I'm taking a side here, but there is a sense of maybe a more narrow defined definition of Lebanon not from a bad place necessarily it could be one of a combination of belief uh real real uh research coming to a different conclusion or for that matter it could be from insecurities at time and this is i think the story really that uh, when a community or when a when an identity feels like it's being uh, treated as secondary or third or it's not it's not given what it feels like it should be given, which is a sense of equality and fairness. Anyway, I don't want to presume anything here, but uh, the hostility that he gets sometimes on social media, listen to him in person, watch him at, this, at these events, and he invites the debate. The man reaches out to the audience and says, challenge me, ask me any question you have. And he points at a point where points at a point he he explains it very very uh profoundly that lebanon is neither a sliver of syria and a colonial experiment by the french and lebanon is neither seven thousand years old lebanon is much more than that and i really enjoyed that moment where i could i mean everyone was locked in and he says that it takes agency and it's Lebanese that built Lebanon and the foundations are pre-French mandate and there is a country and there is it's more than an idea there is a state called Lebanon and it did shine at a point in its modern history it also failed the reasons for failure is exactly what I do this podcast for and why I why I'm even in Lebanon it's trying to explain that narrative and find answers to that core problem maybe charles maybe charles and i don't necessarily see eye to eye on that but i think i think for the most part we do uh there is a point in time where lebanon breaks down and then you end up with the most mediocre sort of disappointing uh corrupt style politicians that survive while the good guys uh fade or die or get killed or whatever so i think we do see eye to eye for the most part but even if we didn't i know and i experienced this last night i know that even after a two-hour lecture not a lecture two hour a two-hour experience he'll sit down with you he'll sit down with an audience that is mostly friendly but there are some contentious uh, moments and he will give you how he sees things and he'll let you see He'll let you explain to him how you see things. And I, I witnessed this myself. Even on the more, maybe the more, they're not, it's not fringe, but let's say it's not the center of debate always. The idea of language, linguistics, the Lebanese dialect or the Lebanese language, how you define these things, that whole subject. Even more recent attempts at trying to maybe create a Lebanese language, a Lebanese script, sorry, a Lebanese script that's more unique than uh, the Latin variation on that we use on WhatsApp or whatever, or even the Arabic script. Anyway, that whole side debate, which sometimes 
becomes heated on social media. He's there yesterday talking about it, acknowledging it. He's an open-minded He's an open-minded person. I think he just wants to explain things in terms of priority and doesn't always see those issues as taking hold when it comes to the main focus of his interpretation of modern Lebanon. Uh, and he says it also that these don't solve our problems. And the way he sees the problems, I think the political issues, is where all of us kind of enter that fray and try to see things and try to explain them and try to fix them. I love him. I love the way he talks. I love the way he thinks. I love the way he explains. And we're lucky to have such a gifted storyteller during this nightmare. We will look back, I think, decades from now, maybe pa well past my life and their lives and all of that. But I think long term, it's these types of individuals that stand out. And uh, there's maybe the number, I mean, it's, it's huge. But I think the generations later will look back and realize that there were a lot of very strong, spirited, and very warm-hearted, kind, and genuine Lebanese souls in Lebanon while this country is suffering. And um, they are the reason why I stick around. And uh, I'm very lucky to have uh, that kind of a crowd to spend a Friday with. So thank you for letting me do an unusual episode. Enjoy your weekend.